Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, here we go. John chapter 8, verse 31. I'm just going to read the entire section right here, and then I think I'm going to break it down. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, do you remember what we had talked about before that? I am the light of the world, and who, he who follows me will never walk in darkness. And then they get into this whole um, deal of you can't testify about yourself. And he goes, yeah, actually I can. Because I'm the one who knows where I came from and where I am going. But even then, I'm doing it according to the law because I'm not here to judge for myself. My father is actually judging with me, and so it is the two of us. And they go into this uh, great dialogue, and then he says, basically, um, I'm going to go away, and you're not going to be able to find me because you can't come where I am. Why not? Because you're going to die in your sins. Because you're going to die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, that I am that I am that I am, that I am Yahweh. And he's been showing them that, do you remember? All along. Every I am has had a predicate. I am the bread of life. I am life. Life is found in me. I am the living water. I am the source of all things. I am the light of the world. Follow me and you will not walk in darkness. So I am the light not only to be seen, but through which all things are seen. And we talked about that last week. And so he's been telling them all along, using their symbolism, uh, their history, saying exactly who he is. All along, he's trying to explain to them, I am God. I am the son of God. I am Yahweh. And if you believe in me, you will be born from above and you will have life. And, And they're not getting it. And so he is telling them this And he says, this is how it's going to happen at the end of that section. Um, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. It is going to culminate into the moment when he fully does what the Father asked him to do. And when he is lifted up on the cross, it will be done. It will be finished. And all will know that he is who he says he is. We will either worship him voluntarily now, or we will bow the knee mandatorily later, but it will be complete. And he says, the reason you can't come where I'm coming is because you will not believe. And because of that, you will die in your sins. And so that is what he is saying. And now it goes on in verse 31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, it says that many believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. 
and you do what you have heard from your father. I love that word abide. It says that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. That abide means to remain. If you remain in my word. I love the play on words there, right? If you remain in my word, what are his words? His word is telling who he is, where he came from, who sent him, what he is here to do, that if you believe in me, his commandment is, if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. If you abide in that word, the word of who I say I am, the fulfillment of what I'm here to do, um, if you believe in that and you abide in my word, right, then you are my disciple. Isn't it interesting, though, the play on words that he is the word, the logos. He is the word of God, and he abides in the Father. And he's saying the same here. If you abide in my word, if you abide in me as I am in the Father, what? You are my disciple. So once again, we're seeing this theme about how there's this unique relationship about how Jesus is in the Father and therefore those that abide in him will also be in that relationship and you're in a new family. You have been born from above. We're gonna see once again, it's like this, this tale of two seeds. The gospel, if you abide in the gospel, the good news that he came uh, to tell. To remain in this good news, you truly will be my disciples and you will know the truth. A cross-reference there that I think is really cool is John 15, 7, which says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So what is it to know the truth? It's to abide. It's to be in relationship with. And if you are in relationship with him, right? If you share the heart of the son that shares the heart of the father, it says then you will know the truth. What does that mean? In each instance, he will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. It is a relationship. Just as he had a relationship with the father and he heard from the father and he walked in obedience with what the father had, it is the same picture for us. To know the truth is to be abide in a relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship, and we listen to his voice, we spend time with him, and he lights up our steps in each situation. It's not a, a one-time knowledge that we just have knowledge, intellectual knowledge of this word, and then we try to abide by the word. No, it's a relationship. It is a, remember, he has written his precepts on our heart. He's taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. And it is a living, breathing relationship. It's not head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. And as we lean into him, he lights up and gives us the truth. And that truth will set us free. Free from what? Well, we're about to see this whole bondage of slavery um, which also reminds you, by the way, of um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That verse came to my, my mind. So they say, we are the offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. 
Now, when you read that, you kind of laugh at first, right? Until you realize what they're actually talking about. Because if you read that, you're like, have you fallen on your head? What are you talking about that you haven't been enslaved to anybody? I can think of a few. Can you? Assyria? Babylonia? Persia? The Greeks? And now who are they under? They're under the Romans. Um, But I don't think they're referring to political domination or subjugation. In spite of all that they have made, in spite of all of that domination, do you realize that the Jewish people have maintained their national identity through it all? And they still have freedom of religion. They were the only people given freedom to worship their own God under the Romans. So what they're saying is that they're assuming that the Abrahamic covenant has already set them free. So they're very, how so? What is the Abrahamic covenant? Let's talk about that because I just wrote that in my notes. But you're going to be my nation. I'm going to give you a nation, right? Um, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, all nations will be blessed. In other words, you are my special nation. You are my royal priesthood. You are my firstborn. That's what he called them. And so they believe that although they have been put under the bondage politically, um, empirically, by other nations, that really and truly, who is their king? God, and because of that, because they are a holy nation or they're his firstborn, that really in many ways they are free. And that proof of this is that they are still free to have their religion under this Roman domination. So they're like, oh, well, you may be able to dominate us on the outside, but you cannot do that on the inside because we are God's firstborn. We are his family. And so that's really what they're saying. So they're confused as to why is Jesus then talking about some kind of future liberation when they feel that they are already in? Does that make sense? Like, what are you talking about? Slaves to anything. So he is talking. um, So outwardly, they may be under Caesar, but inwardly, they are free. They are the children of God. So Jesus says a very important statement. So he answers that with truly, truly. So what does that mean? This is seriously important. So you're very confused. So you need to listen up. So this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus uses a metaphor. They regard themselves as the children of Abraham, but in reality, they are slaves to what? Sin. If you want to read more about that, Romans 6 lays a lot of that out in Romans chapter 6. He uses a metaphor that they understand. In the Roman world, slaves were really considered part of the family along with the parents and the children. But the difference is they did not have permanent security. Why? Because at any moment, they could be sold to another family. And to be quite honest, they could earn their freedom. And so in many ways, they were a part of the family, but they weren't a permanent part of the family. Um, But in contrast, 
A son belongs to the family forever, even after death. It's true. I still talk about Zach. When I, when I introduced myself um, to speak, and it always, it took me a long time to be able to say it without just bursting in tears, and that's not a way to start an event. But uh, when I would introduce myself, I, I, I didn't know how to introduce myself at first. Like, you don't think of these things until you go through this situation. And I would say, because everybody's introducing themselves of, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm from da-da-da-da, and I've been married for da-da-da-da, and I have this many kids. And I'm like, goodness, what am I going to say? I mean, that's a, hard, that's a hard thing to start with. Hi, I'm Shannon Hoffbauer. I'm Mary Shannon. I'm your Bible teacher. I'm originally from Little Rock. That's why you hear the twang. And I went to Baylor University and ended up in the desert. And then I'm like, Ugh. well, I have two children. I said, my son went to be with Jesus, but I have him. And he would have been 28 September 21st. And then I go on to my daughter. He is my son. A son remains in the family forever. Mm. God chose the nation of Israel. They were his people. But I need you to understand, they were under contract. I thought about this driving through Virginia because do you remember the law? I mean, it is a conditional covenant. When, they, when he said, will you marry me? What did they say? Yes. But the law came with blessings and curses. The only reason they remained intact, because they were cheaters. They were adulterers to their groom. The only reason they remained intact was because of the faithfulness of their groom. And if you want to see a picture of that, read the prophet Hosea. Because there would have never been, I'm telling you, it's all about the faithfulness of the groom. And it's still today. We're going to have a wedding ceremony, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done, the faithfulness of our bridegroom. But they are under contract. So in many ways, he's saying, no, he's saying, you have been brought in this family as a slave, treated as family, but there is no permanent security here unless the son, what, sets you free and you're missing it. Because I am the son. I have fulfilled the law. And because of that, when I die and I pay for that and I rise again, I can offer freedom and new life. And that's what he's trying to tell them. That the slave is bound by contract. The slave has to perform. The slave has to do his duty to be accepted. And he's saying the son, the son can come in and out of pasture. I thought about this. And I was talking about this last week with one of my friends. And I said, I can kind of relate to this a little bit. Um, and I, I want to be honoring about this. But I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like with family to where you felt like you were always striving for that approval, working really hard. And then maybe something happened and they just threw you away. I got to thinking about that and I thought, gosh, you know, that you're in, but you're not really in. You're always a little out. And if something goes wrong, there's no security. Why? Because you weren't the son. And when it all went bad, you were gone. And I was talking to one of my friends and 
She goes, I remember going to a family event and big family and they were going to do a family picture, but they only wanted the blood relation. So the wives were out and I thought, whoa, you know, I don't think those grandkids would be there if it wasn't for you, right? If you hadn't popped them out, I think you had a little something to do with this. You're important in this scenario, but do you get what I'm saying? And I just sat and thought about that for a while. I don't even know if that resonates with you at all. But I sat and thought about that, and I thought, gosh, I'm so glad that God's not like that. Man, I'm so glad that I don't have to continue to strive and strive and work for his approval and for his affection and worry that if I ever do something, I'm going to get thrown out and never spoken to again. Why not? Because I am blood. Why? Because the son set me free. The son paid my debt and he set me free. And now I'm in a new covenant of his blood and I have become an heir to that. He has given me what he deserves and I now have been born into the family of God. I am blood. I have been born from above and I am a daughter of the king. I can come in and out freely with pasture, come and talk, have affection. It was just a beautiful moment when I thought, man, I'm so glad about that. So glad. And it applies to what I taught this weekend when you talk about Hannah and you know her culture told her that she was worthless. She was as good as dead. And no matter how hard she would strive to meet up to the culture standards, she couldn't. And so I just have realized the older I've gotten, when we go after the love of the world, it's so fickle and it doesn't satisfy. And how often do we go after the love of God, which we already have? And I love that Brennan Manning says in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he says, God loves you as you are and not as you should be. And so he's trying to explain to them that you think that you are, because you are offspring of Abraham, that you're in the kingdom. And I've been trying to tell you, you're not. You're not in. That brings us back. I'm always writing themes. Do you have your theme card? You still haven't obeyed me. Y'all lie like a rug. If you, I pulled out my theme card, you know, that I keep in here about all the themes of John. And when I was, I go, oh my goodness, there's so many themes from chapter one right there. The tale of two seeds, the fact that we must be born from above. It must be a different kind of birth. It doesn't matter if you're the offspring of Abraham, you have to be born from above. And it also brings up the theme that he says, I am the son of God that he tabernacled among us and that we could see his glory of the only son begotten of the father. And what was the mission statement of John? So that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the sent one, the holy one of Israel, and that he is the son of God and that by believing in him, you would have life. Do you see all this flowing through the pages of John? He says, notice that in verse 37, he says that you are the offspring of, of Abraham. But then let's read 39. Oh, hold on. I want to, let me read. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. 
yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. It, it also means like that section right there comes from the Greek word that's also used when it's talking about the purification jars uh, containing, that word is containing the water, okay, meaning to the brim. And it also is found when, um, when he says that if I had written everything about Jesus, there would not be enough books that could contain it. And he's saying, my word is not contained in you. My word will not abide in you. That is why uh, you're not seeing. You're seeking to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak of what I've seen from my father and you've do you're doing what you have heard from your father. He's like, you claim to be the sons of Abraham. Yet do you understand? You're trying to kill me. That is not what Abraham did. And he goes on and he says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Now, do you notice that he called them offspring in 37? But he says, you're not Abraham's what? Children. Okay, you're offspring. You physically come from Abraham but you're not his children. You really aren't his sons because you are not emulating, you are not following what Abraham did. So in other words, on the outside you come from Abraham, but you're not like him at all, where? On the inside, okay? And that brings us back to the whole thought of the issue of circumcision, right? When they thought that uh, believers those who became believers needed to be circumcised. And he's like, no, it's no longer about the outside. It's about the end, the circumcision of the heart. Let's get rid of this whole outside appearance thing. And he's saying, yes, you're offspring of Abraham, but you're not the children of Abraham because children emulate their fathers and you're in no way emulating him. He says this, um, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Go back to the stories of Abraham. When God spoke to Abraham, what happened? He believed, and it was given to him as righteousness. When God sent uh, those to tell Abraham about what would happen with Sodom and Gomorrah when Abraham encountered the messengers of God, what did he do? He invited them in. He believed them. He was humble of heart. He was teachable. And a matter of fact, in Jewish tradition, that's what they expected from the sons of Abraham, a teachable spirit, a humble heart. But yet you do not see it emulated here in these religious leaders. It says, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Well, that's just rude, right? What's happening? They're getting their toes stepped on. And when that happens, they lash out personally. And, and they're making innuendo right there. He ignores it. And he said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. He's like, no, matter of fact, if God was your father, if you truly know God, you would recognize me in a moment because I look just like him. 
I say everything he says. I do everything he's asked me to do. I am the spitting image of him. So how in the world would you know him and not recognize me? Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why? Because you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Boy, that's some words, right? It's truth. He was a murderer from the beginning. And what is it that you're trying to do? Kill me. A man who has done nothing but tell you the truth and you want to murder me. I also love the fact where it says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. That also should tell you, remind you of standing in the light. This idea of truth and light because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I love this part. He's saying, you absolutely will not believe in me because there's no, you have no room in your heart to receive my word. But I want you to tell me, you name one thing I've done. Convict me. You convict me of sin. Give me the reason why you will not accept my teaching. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's as simple as that. It is so evident, and we're gonna see it in a minute, about the story of the man born blind who receives his sight, and those who had sight were as blind as bats. He's gonna give us an example of that. But he is saying, you literally will not see what is in front of your face because you refuse to see. It is evident. And even you cannot convict me of any sin, yet you refuse to believe me. If you truly knew my father, you would recognize me. And the Jews answered him, we are, not, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Ooh, they're getting heated. Why would they say, are you a Samaritan? That's kind of crazy. Because they believe that the Samaritans are the people who compromise the purity of their faith. All right? And here they believe Jesus is compromising the purity of their faith. Why? Because they think every time he talks, he's stepping on the what? He's stepping on the law. But he's not stepping on the law. They're stuck in the scales. And he's trying to tell them the depth of the music. But instead, they're protecting the scales. And they're not seeing. They're not listening to the music. And so they call him basically a Samaritan, and then they tell him he has a demon. Oh, okay. What about him says that he has a demon? Do you understand how silly that is? He is peaceful. He is kind. What is broken, he makes whole. He commands, create. I mean, you have a demon? I do not have a demon. He just answers it. I love that. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm here to honor my father. You can continue to dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. So I'm not gonna sit and argue with you about who I am and who I'm not. I'm gonna keep telling you what the father came to tell me to say. 
I'm not here to glorify myself, but I'm gonna tell you, there is one who will, is what he's saying. There is one who will glorify me, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, so you better listen up. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I'm not gonna engage in this. I am not here to, uh, you know, water down uh, this faith. I am here to show you what it actually looks like. I'm not gonna get into an argument with you about if I have a demon or not. I'm gonna continue to do what God called me to do. There is, I'm not here to judge, but there will be a judge. At the end of all things, he will judge, and he will judge based on what you've done with my word. So let me be very clear to you. At the end, he says, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, what is that word he's talking about? The gospel. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It's as simple as that. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and did the prophets, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him, and if I said I didn't, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He's like, I'm not going to argue with you about who I am. I'm going to continue to do what I came to do. God, the Father, will glorify me when it's time, but I am telling you, I've been sent by him to give you this commandment, that he who believes in me has everlasting life. I have been sent to do that. And if I told, if I changed it now, if I told you it's not true, I would be a liar. And so I'm hanging on to that. Abraham, your father Abraham looked forward to this day. And he saw it. And they are about to lose their mind. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. By the way, how did he look forward to it? How do you think Abraham saw his day? Well, he saw it by faith, right? He saw according to what he had been given. He's judged according to the faith that he had been given. If the cross is here, right? Abraham is before that. But Abraham was given promises of God about the coming of that. And he believed, not to mention, Abraham literally walked through it with his son Isaac as they walk up Calvary and they literally walked through the scenario and God said, you will not have to, but one day I will. So with eyes of faith, he experienced what was to come. We, on the other hand, are over here, right? It's been after the cross. We experience it the same way. We experience it through eyes of faith, through the revelation that we have been given. We weren't there, but we believe what we've been told by the word of God through eyes of faith. And that, that is the same way. And he's saying Abraham looked forward to the day and he saw it. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
before Abraham was, I am. Whoa. What did he just say? Well, honestly, he has not said there anything he has not said already. He's been telling them all along, what? That before the beginning began, there he was. And that he has been with the Father. And that the only one who can truly know the Father is the one that was with the Father and was sent to them by the Father so that through him, they could know him. He's been telling them that from the very beginning. It's just that this time, it got real literal and real serious. And he is saying, yes, before Abraham was, this I am telling you, I am. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. And they are losing their minds. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They have no power. Do you love that? The only power that they have is the power that has been allowed. And so his time has not yet come. They pick up stones to kill him and he walks out of their midst. And now we're about to get the most beautiful parable of that entire discussion. Do you understand that? So he has already said, I am the living water. He who thirsts, let him come to me and drink because the scripture says that out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. Now he's had an entire conversation laying out to them that you cannot go where I'm going because you're gonna die in your sins because you will not believe that I am that I am. And then he begins to argue, he goes through the insults, and he says, listen, my story is not going to change. I'm going to keep telling you the truth, or, not, or I would be like you, a liar. You think you're in. You think that you're the children of Abraham, and that you are in God's family. And I'm telling you, you're not. I have come so that you can be set free from slavery to the scales and you can start to play music and you, you refuse to believe. You're refusing to believe. You say you follow Abraham, you're nothing like Abraham. Abraham believed me and it was given to him as righteousness and he just keeps teaching and teaching and teaching and now we go into the most beautiful story. I love it. I wanted to read you out of this commentary because, I don't know, I was just, I loved this commentary at the end of that chapter, and there's something I wanted to say about it. So I'm just going to read. It's the NIV application commentary. It says, there is some, something ultimate and final about Jesus' call in this discourse. I am the light of the world. I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sins. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In this gospel, Jesus brokers all personal access to God in life. He is not merely the bearer of these things. He possesses these things in himself. And to embrace him, to believe in him, and to follow him means that we acquire these things by being in him. Christianity will always experience hostility in the world. We expect that unbelievers will reject our message, persecute the church, and bring untold suffering. The stories of Christian displacement and martyrdom throughout the centuries of the church include the stories of Christian suffering today in places like the Sudan and Egypt all speak the same truth. 
Those who choose to live a godly life in the world, who follow Jesus Christ and who possess a public witness will be persecuted. But this is not the main theme of John chapter 8. The deepest paradox of John 8 is that Jesus suffers religious persecution. These are not godless masses who pursuit of paganism has deemed Jesus inconvenient. Jesus is confronting the world to be sure, but it is a religious world. A world of unbelief, yes, but a religious world with spiritual appetites. The Judaism embraced by Jesus' opponents was a deeply spiritual religion that earnestly sought its Messiah, prayed fervently to God, followed the scriptures, and worshiped regularly. Those whose hearts were inclined to hear God's new voice in the world quickly recognized this voice in Jesus and followed him. Yet those who were entrenched in the traditions of their religious world, whose spiritual passions betrayed them and closed their eyes and ears, were singularly unable to find anything redeeming in Jesus' life work. I'm going to read that again because I sat there for a while. Those whose hearts were inclined to hear God's new voice in the world quickly recognized this voice in Jesus and followed him. Yet those who were entrenched in the traditions of their religious world, whose spiritual passions betrayed them and closed their eyes and ears, were singularly unable to find anything redeeming in Jesus' life work. They couldn't find one redeeming thing. They had gotten so judgmental holding on to tradition. The paradigm of the passage is then set. Jesus steps into a religiously devout environment and immediately splits his audience. Those who follow him become passionate believers. Those who stand opposed, who defend their traditions with zeal, suddenly become zealous opponents, enemies of God's work in the world. This passage warns the custodians of tradition that their defense of these spiritual habits and rituals may well be their undoing. Oh my goodness. I'm seeing this play out and I'm not even gonna draw a conclusion on it. I'm just gonna tell you the things I've been thinking about driving through Virginia reading this. Is, do you understand that his main persecution came from the religious world? And I think that's what's so hard uh, to maneuver when you're in ministry. Um, I actually saw some of this play out. And um, one thing I'm going to say is I don't want to give the Pharisees a bad rap. All right? You want to talk about amazing? They held to that law. They held to the Torah. They protected it. I think they meant well because they knew that in this Torah was blessing to them. They saw what happened when they stepped away from it for their nation. They tried to protect their nation by enforcing this way of life because they felt that if they had this way of life, they would be blessed by God. And they knew what would happen if you stepped outside of it. And so they tried to protect it by putting all kinds of guardrails around it. And what they did is they ended up burdening down the people so, but their intention, and listen, they were devout. I wonder what group I would have been in. Think you need to sit and think about, like 
This is what I do. I study the word. I teach the word. I protect it. I mean, would that have been my group? And, and what would I have been like? And I think about so many, what happened to them today? What happened to them? Because all of a sudden, those that protected the law and were to be the shepherds were not shepherding their people. And actually, they were abusing their people. So what went wrong? We see it today. I've been watching, listening to all kinds of different podcasts of leaders that are falling all over the place. Um, I watch that. I watch some that are still in the pulpits. And I'm telling you, as you listen to them, it's not necessarily their doctrine that is bad. It's their stinking heart. It's their attitude. How they have treated people in their congregation or other people in ministry and in their goal to protect theology, they've gotten so hateful, so angry, so hard. And now all of a sudden, we have all of these leaders that are trying to protect the doctrine. And in the meantime, they've become bullies. They've become all kinds of hateful leaders. Or they've, been, uh, they've allowed this narcissistic, I'm on the throne mentality, allow them to think that the rules don't apply. But yet when I look at that, at times I feel sorry for them because I don't think they set out to be that way. Because the majority of some of those great leaders are in some of the most liberal environments you've ever seen in your life. They're constantly being attacked by the culture and they're constantly feeling like they have to stand up for the word of God. But somewhere in the midst, we've just gotten so hard. And so I get it. And I pray, oh Lord, help me to know theology, help me to teach it right, but above all, help me to be able to hear the music in my own heart and shepherd people and have empathy and love and in disagreement even have love. With the harshness that you hear from the pulpit, if I was on the outside, no wonder they think God is angry. Or how we treat one another, no wonder they don't want to come in this midst. And how often in the church do we pour shame, and you're going to see this in this next story in a big way, is when this guy's life is transformed and he speaks up, they're going to shame him at the end. I go, do you realize that when I taught high school forever, you want to know why young people get tired of chapel? Because every testimony is the same. And it isn't true. Every testimony is A plus B equals C. I was bad whatever it was, whatever you were doing. I met Jesus, and now I am good. So y'all be good. And the kids will walk out of there going, no, okay. And then you have people who come to know the Lord as children. Well, all my junk's been as a Christian in a fishbowl. And I said, so what was it about you that made you feel like you had to, and it's because of the years of shame of religion, and we want people to be authentic, and we want people to be true, and you want people to be open. But I'm going to tell you right now, this is the most dangerous place to ever be that. Because what you're going to notice is as you read about some of these pastors that have failed and that have done a bad job, you want to know what they do? They immediately take every sermon they ever preached and they take it offline. Was every sermon bad? Was it not true? The words they put out there, the theology, it's not true. 
So who's the cancel culture? The world or us? And we need to, I think, think through some of this stuff and realize that the greatest persecution, because I'm gonna tell you some of the stuff we get emails about and some of the stuff that pastors hear and they get, they get arrows shot to them, it's not from the world. Very rarely do I offend the world by speaking the love of God. The people that I offend, the people who are critical, are the religious, the people in the church. And some of the ways that they come at you, you're just like, oh, my word, Thunderbird. And we have to remember, honestly, who are the ones that put Jesus to death? The religious people. Because they were so blind in their own pride, and they were hanging on to their tradition so much, they did not see one redeemable quality in Jesus that was perfection. How in this world do we get to the point where we can't see because of our own bias and tradition and pride, we can't empathize with one another as we limp through this world together and you can't look at someone who's given their life as a servant of God and you can't find one redeemable quality. You're gonna cancel them out and not allow any restoration to take place. One of the reasons pastors are falling too is because they don't have people around them accountable and helping them because they're true afraid to be authentic at times. And sometimes we're just sometimes shooting stars like this become so narcissistic, right? That they lose sight of who they are as well. I, I don't have the answers, but I think we just need to maybe ponder some of that uh, this week and find out where we stand in it. Because sometimes it makes you want to quit. I'm going to be quite honest with you. You're just like, I, I can't do this. It makes me want to quit. I'm not going to be able to make it. And then I think, okay, cool your jets. Abide. Just abide. Just, just keep walking with him and let him speak to you. And you just keep doing your thing. But I think there's a lot in this chapter eight for you to read through and think through and let it apply to you. And we're about to really see it come alive in this blind man. So I decided not to start that. But um, this commentary is pretty awesome about that. I know you're gonna be asking me what it is. So I might as well tell you all. The NIV application commentary on John chapter eight. Okay, it was really good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you, um, Lord, just for thoughts that maybe don't even have conclusions. Just stuff for us to think about, meditate on. Where do we lie? How hard do we hold on to religious traditions and we fail to actually hear you, Lord, and be an instrument that you can use? I can't answer that for all of us. And so, God, I always pray that I do that well because you didn't come to abolish the law. You are, you are the walking fulfillment of the law. It's just, it doesn't end there. I mean, you came as, you're the Torah of Messiah. You completed the law and you've taken us to a depth of a relationship. And in that relationship with you, 
As you are in the Father, we are in you. And if we align our hearts with you and we humble our hearts and we become teachable, Lord, you said you would give us the truth. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Lord, I just think the whole issue is the proximity to you. I just pray that I'm always pressing in, always leaning in, always asking, always humbling my heart, always getting right. God, I pray that you would give me um, your combination of truth and mercy, that I would see empathy in others' pain, and I would be an encouragement of any kind of restoration. Lord, we love you, and I just know that I'm so glad to be a citizen of your kingdom. So use me however you choose. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.